This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. So today's episode, we're talking about war algorithms and international law. So we're going to talk to Dustin Lewis today of Harvard Law School from the Program of International Law and Armed Conflict about war algorithms and pathways for using AI, autonomy and other novel technologies to ensure greater respect for international law. We're going to focus on his recent project, International Legal and Policy Dimensions of War Algorithms, Enduring and Emerging Concerns, which followed on from three pathways to secure greater respect from international law concerning war algorithms, which was from 2020. Dustin's the research director at the Harvard Law School Program on International Law and Armed Conflict, or or PLAC, where he manages the research, publications and online platforms, as well as a long list of initiatives, which regularly includes briefing governments and running expert workshops. Uh, With a focus on public international law sources and methodologies, he leads those research projects on the theoretical underpinnings and application of international norms related to the contemporary challenges concerning armed conflict. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us this evening for you, this morning for us. Absolutely, Lauren. I'm so excited for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be on this podcast. I think I'm pretty much fully caught up with the previous episodes of the Law and Future of War podcast. So I'm very honored and excited to to be among this stellar group and a little bit nervous. So yes, very excited. First up, what do you mean when you use the phrase war algorithm and where do you find them and why, why do they matter? Why do we care from a legal perspective or if any perspective for that matter? Yeah, absolutely. So the basic idea is that a war algorithm is any algorithm that's expressed in computer code that's effectuated through a constructed system and that's capable of operating in relation to armed conflicts. So, you know, this is not a legal concept as such. And indeed, my co-authors and I, uh, professors uh, Naz Mudirzadeh and Gabriela Bloom, thought that it may be useful instead analytically to focus on the notion of a war algorithm because... They thought this, we thought this might be a useful conceptual unit pertaining to legal regulation. It might help us not get mired down, for example, in definitions of uh, autonomy or automated weapons, autonomous weapons or cyber or robotics, et cetera. Um, and doing so also allows us to widen the lens a little bit so we can think through what it means for more and more tasks and decisions in war to involve uh, human machines interactions, you know, often with life and death stakes. Uh, while focusing not only on weapons, you know, and so we moved also in our later work from the war algorithm framing um, into something that's a little bit more nuanced, I hope, which is the uh, sort of algorithmic and data-reliant socio-technical system. Quite a mouthful, I realize. So let's just keep with the the war algorithm as the basic conceptual unit here. Um, but we adopted that other framework, this sort of algorithmic and data-reliant socio-technical system, to underline that most of the systems also depend on data. Uh, in addition to the algorithms, and to emphasize the social dimensions of the technical applications, right? And you, you know, good question. Why? Why do we care? You can find these war algorithms in elements ranging from the so-called targeting cycle, so deciding who can be uh, susceptible to lethal targeting in attack in armed conflicts, and deciding who to detain, how to allocate humanitarian assistance, and pretty much every aspect of war involving sort of data-reliant algorithmic processes. So when it comes to these algorithms, I think they matter primarily because they play an increasingly important role in shaping how parties fight wars and how civilians experience conflicts. And they matter 
No, because they're so central to structuring how humans relate to machines when it comes to fighting, surviving, and hopefully ending wars. That's a really fascinating perspective because, as as you've pointed out, the group of government experts, the uh, con- Convention for Certain Conventional Weapons, talking about emerging technologies relating to lethal autonomous weapon systems, which is another mouthful. So the GGE on laws is also really mired in the discussions about the definition of autonomy, which you you, you referred to earlier. So I'm interested with with this war algorithm definition that you've created. Where where is your limit when we're talking about war? Does it does it matter for what you're talking about? I mean, data is a problem. Yes, its relationship to belligerency or how we use that data to make decisions in the targeting cycle, as you say, is important. But is there a limit then on how far that definition stretches out around those edges of what you would consider war or armed conflict? Yeah, so for our end, we thought it might be useful to think of the, you know, as that three-part definition on that piece sort of being that it's capable of operating in relation to armed conflict, not necessarily even that it was exclusively going to do this, but and that it did do it, but that it's capable to do it, right? Because we wanted to fold in the idea that it's important to think about these things, not only at the employment stage in terms of actually using or adopting the technologies, but also in the potential for, uh, on two fronts, one potential is to... um, to be able to design them from the outset. And the second one is to use quote unquote, like off the shelf technologies or something else that mm. maybe it wasn't initially designed for applications in war, but because so uh, many of the sort of civilian technology bounds are dissolving when it comes to adopting cyber, robotic, autonomous, AI, machine learning techniques and tools, it's sort of like, well, maybe we should actually just be thinking about the use of these algorithmic systems, you know, again, expressed through computer code. So it's not totally unlimited. And mm-hmm. those that are constructed, used in constructed systems. So that also allowed us to sidestep questions around biological agents, right? So it's not everything's included. It has to be in the computer code. It has to be a constructed system. It has to be capable of operating in armed conflict. But we really think having this wide lens is really useful to think through analytically. What are the range of issues that international actors, especially states, should be covering when they're discussing these issues because the technologies are, from my perspective, they're getting adopted pretty quickly. And I think we want to get out in front of them with the regulations before we're having to you know, do a rear guard action. Yeah, so we're avoiding building that plane in the in the air, as some people would say. Um, well, although I guess we're kind of doing that now, aren't we? Because they are, they are here and they kind of are everywhere. So um, with that in mind then, what is the legal challenge or what are the specific legal challenges um, with the use of, of war algorithms or in capabilities that incorporate these? Because I think, as you as you suggested, they're very widespread in their use. So what are the specific legal challenges that come from their use? Sure. And, you know, you know it goes to you know, emphasize here too, it's like not as if these are totally new either. Obviously, they've been around for as long as computers have been around, et cetera. But I do think that the legal challenges, in some ways, some of them are enduring but a lot of them seem to be emerging. So I see the legal challenges arising from at least two levels. Okay. So on one level, mm-hmm. the legal challenges concern whether or not the effects and behaviors of a war algorithm are sufficiently foreseeable ahead of time, administrable during employment, and reviewable after the operation is over. And so for some of these data-reliant algorithmic systems, you know, those effects uh, and behaviors will be foreseeable, administrable, and reviewable. Yet for many others, they might not be. Mm. And if the effects and behaviors are not sufficiently foreseeable, administrable, and reviewable, I have difficulty in seeing how its employment you know, for this war algorithm could be fully lawful. So that's one level. 
On another level, though, the legal challenges relate to how we conceptualize legal or at least legally adjacent notions of what I would consider these kind of big ticket issues, such as responsibility, intent, knowledge, control, and judgment, among others. Right? So from my perspective, the potential use of at least certain data-reliant algorithmic systems merits a kind of back-to-the-basics moment where we can determine what it means for parties to engage in legal and indeed legally responsible behavior concerning war. And as part of that discussion, I think we should be thinking about the normative commitments and value judgments meant to underpin the legal framework governing recourse to these systems in a, in a very wide view. So, yeah, I guess that's how I'd see this sort of operating on the legal challenges on at least two levels there. Again, much of that debate about autonomy in armed conflict is focused on the use of lethal force. So the debate focused on laws is really centred on that lethal autonomous weapon system as opposed to those supporting um, algorithms, which is where you've, you've broadened your lens to. So what, what accountability issues are there um, for the general use of these algorithms in military technologies if they're not necessarily connected to that use of lethal force? Sure. So, and I really don't want to sound robotic myself either here, but I think there's probably at least two aspects of concern here too. So um, one is that this increased use of war algorithms in our conflicts has the potential to reconfigure what it means for one or more humans to exercise agency and responsibility over life and death conduct. That's not just weapons, but of course, we want to ensure that weapons, means, and methods are covered, but it also involves things like allocating humanitarian services, deciding who can and should be detained and for how long, navigating uninhabited maritime systems in the ocean, and even giving, formulating and giving legal advice itself. All of these are already being affected by the operation of war algorithms in ways that I, I don't think we as an international society have given enough structured attention to yet. Uh, another concern is that, at least for those of us who do not belong to a party, to an armed conflict, but who are concerned about respect for the law, uh, I think, you know, we're going to need to be able to meaningfully address what uh, I consider to be kind of a double black box. And by that, I mean, in, in short, algorithmic opacity encased in military secrecy. Mm. So if we can't in some way have uh, a way to see into this uh, double black box and uh, get our arms around it somehow, I don't see good grounds for external actors, whether it's other states, judicial bodies, or us in the public, to be able to scrutinize this kind of war-related conduct in a legally cognizable way. Something that um, I've struggled with is the idea that some of these computer systems aren't capable of having their decisions traced back in a linear or logical fashion in the same way that we would do when we're trying to justify a human's actions, particularly if we're talking about accountability and, you know, in a, in a prosecution, for example. So in some cases, those black boxes are not going to be knowable because of the, and again, I'm not an IT expert, but that's the way that the either the convolutional neural networks or the way that algorithms work means that you can never actually identify how it is that the system got from A to B. Do you think those kinds of systems could never be fielded lawfully? Or do you think there's other ways we can know what's inside those black boxes? So I, I think the short answer is it's unsettled, but I'm concerned. So <laughs> yeah. I think it's unsettled for on a few levels. So one level is that I don't think we've yet decided as an international society, at least so far as I can tell, that there's a legal requirement that all armed conflict related conduct be reflective of human agency and scrutable mm -hmm. by humans. So I think that's a really big question. 
If that is a premise, though, that's going to underlie the legal framework moving forward, then I think it's going to be very difficult to field technologies that are not susceptible to that sort of not only foreseeability ahead of time and administrability during employment, but also evaluation afterwards, right? And I say this not only for the parties themselves that are engaging, um, that are fielding the technologies, whether as means and methods of warfare, whether in supporting humanitarian decisions, whether supporting detention decisions, but also then evaluating the conduct of other parties, right? Because as you know, listeners will, will know, there's obligations under the Geneva Conventions to prosecute or extradite violator, alleged violators of grave breaches. And to me, it's really difficult to be able to, to decide if you're going to prosecute or extradite somebody if you can't even detect, let alone scrutinize, what sort of decisions inform the conduct that they were meant to be responsible for. Yeah, I, I fight, I'm going to ask another one on this one. It's the trade-off between predictability and traceability. So if you know what the system, as you were talking about, the foreseeability of what the system can do, and then at the back end, the capacity to review what it has done, does it matter so much how the system does it as long as we know what it's going to do and how we can predict how it's going to act in those in those complex environments? Because, I mean, armed conflict is the worst of human behaviour in any from any lens, that it's so unpredictable, it's so complicated. If we've managed to find a way to test a machine that is capable of that sort of decision-making on behalf of humans in those situations, does it, does it matter how the algorithm gets there? So I think the where you're going to land on that question, you know, sort of that'll depend on where you land on those first order questions around if there's a need to have um, the conduct be reflective of human agency and what that means, mm -hmm. right? So this really big question of what can and should be reposed only in natural persons, in individual humans, right? Uh, whether a commander, an operator, et cetera. And what can and maybe should be uh, reposed in machine processes, in artificial agents, right? So depending on where you land on that question, then that's going to, I think, really help answer the, the question that you're posing. So for the people who think that uh, machines are going to be able to bring about results, to bring about effects into the world that are reflective of what they consider to be greater legal compliance. Maybe they'll have fewer incidental uh, civilian harm, for instance, in the targeting cycle if you know, anticipating the potential for you know, the, the legal considerations around distinction, proportionality, precautions, et cetera. Maybe these systems might be able to reduce uh, potential civilian suffering uh, if they're fully automated or however we might think about that. But for other people, they think, well, that's not weighing the things that ought to be weighed first and foremost, that ultimately there's a values question here that states and other international actors ought to be answering head on, which is, are some of those judgments, are some of those decisions, some of those forms of responsibility and agency ultimately reposable only in humans? And we need to draw limits based on that basic contention. So for my part, I, I don't take a view on this in the sense that I don't think that the law necessarily speaks to this with as much clarity to be able to say sufficiently that the doctrine is currently here, that the law is, exists, is absolutely settled. Mm. But I'm very strongly encouraging states and interna other international actors to answer these questions because I think they're so important to be able to help us determine what's really at stake when we're talking about applying AI uh, and other machine learning you know, techniques and methods and um, these other systems that really do, I think, raise profoundly different questions about distributed responsibility and agency over life and death decisions.
So some people have contended that that distributive agency is already in play in military operations in the way that you, you mentioned the, the term the target cycle and the way that certain functions are outsourced to individuals and then a commander makes an ultimate decision. And there's analogies that have been drawn to say that the use of autonomous weapon systems or something that's incorporating our AI or those algorithms is no different because it's just the designers of the algorithms that are contributing that part to the decision cycle. So that agency question is one that I think is not particularly clear in, in the competing arguments about the system is always, the system is made up of many parts and some of those parts are machines, but those machines are built by humans. So therefore there must be human agency. So could you really focus in on that issue? Because I think the, the two competing parts of that argument to me aren't particularly clear about how this is field that it's built by a human. People say, well, eventually you can you can trace that back to a human. So the agency issue can just be sidestepped. But obviously it's a bigger issue than that. Yeah. So I think you know part of the question here is one of like, how do you enter into this uh, question? So do we want to enter it into it through a responsibility lens primarily? Do we want to enter it in through a socio-technical applications lens? Like how best to uh, enter into it. So I think maybe we could take the responsibility approach to start with. So um, as listeners will probably know, there's pretty much two kind of three forms of responsibility in international law applicable in relation to armed conflict. So the big one is state responsibility, but then there's also individual criminal responsibility. You know, there's, there's also international organization responsibility, but let's bracket that for today's discussion, right? So on the state responsibility approach, you know, many states already, you know, this this one pretty much says, you know, for, for those who aren't deeply steeped in these issues, that uh, the state itself is responsible for the conduct of its actors, uh, the individual humans who compose its armed forces, the organs of the state, and, and others um, who for whose conduct the state, you know, is attributable to the state. And uh, for many states today that use the so-called targeting cycle, right, whether it's the six-part targeting cycle that NATO adopts or others, they'll say, look, we already have individual sets of human agents that are responsible at each stage of this. And overall, the state's uh, obligations are performed at each of those layers. And it's in the combination that you get the full performance of the obligation. So all this is doing with the introduction of uh, increasingly complex you know, data-reliant algorithmic systems is it's making it more possible for the state to enhance its compliance by performing those obligations in more specific, more predictable, et cetera, ways that are more informed. Right? So that's that's the one of the approaches. And then on this approach, though, too, it raises this question of ultimately in that targeting cycle, if there's a use, whether at the stage of gathering information and uh, figuring out who might ultimately be nominated for targeting and direct attack, or maybe even prioritizing a single person for it, or maybe in the estimating collateral damage stage, each of these and other stages of the targeting cycle might involve the application of some of these techniques, right? The question on the international criminal law front is, can one person be held responsible where that where a use of force was uh, considered in some way to be criminal, right? So whether or not it had those two elements of the mens rea and the actus reis, the, the, uh, the mental elements, and then also act elements. And this is where I think the, the, the state responsibility and individual criminal responsibility frameworks have some uh, further development that we should probably be thinking about how to connect these around. Because on one hand, on state responsibility, so much of the debate, and especially on, on the side of states that are adopting these technologies, are saying, we are enhancing the performance of this. But other people are concerned, you're saying, right, but you're actually making it so that 
there's only one commander who might be responsible, but because of the standards for intent and knowledge, will never be met. On one hand, you can't repose in that one person all of this sort of constructive knowledge to know that everything that went into the process is actually going to be okay. And on the other hand, the intent and knowledge standards are so high that they would not be able to violate them in the first place. Pretty much I see this as one of the sets of fault lines around existing responsibility frameworks and ones that bake in all these questions around, are you enhancing the performance? Are you reposing it in one or more people? And really what does this not introduction of these technologies, but the greater and greater use of them in much more complex ways. There's a really interesting uh, concept that has come up in the social, the science, technology, and society literature around a sort of a moral crumple zone where the humans become a part of the moral crumple zone because um, where there's machine processes that fail and all these systematic failures, one individual human is meant to be responsible. So this example that I'm thinking of is used primarily in uh, air traffic. So if there's a flight that collapses or the flight that is taken out, an individual pilot's held responsible for a massively complex set of systems, right? Mm -hmm. And one question I've heard posed is like, are we setting up a system where commanders are going to be the legal moral crumple zone? when it comes to these technologies, because no one person could ever actually be in a position to validate in ways that we would consider legally cognizable, all of the elements that would need to go into that. Yeah, that's, that's a really great answer to what was a, a tricky question. So thanks for explaining the background to it, because I, I think it's important to appreciate how how these decisions get made, but then how could a person possibly understand that breadth of information that leads to that particular decision and, and you know we've got international jurisprudence that says the commander has to take all reasonable efforts to to be made aware of the information available to them which in the in the cases I'm thinking from the ICTY refers to all of the staff officers in their headquarters who had information available to them that were that there was a responsibility for the commander to have that information before taking actions how could you possibly as a human be aware of all of the data that a machine with access to big data and and those processes that you referred to earlier possibly understand what had gone into into that decision making process so it's it's a really interesting area and i think you're right it's not something that's really been looked into in in much detail yeah, I kind of think of it as a reliance ladder. So pretty much like how high up can you go on the ladder? Like what steps, how high, you know, each step being a different element that one person can rely on from testing and evaluation or, you know, mm. at the beginning, you know, the design and concepts of operations, testing mm -hmm. and evaluation, um, all the way up to fielding and after action review, like how much could that one person, how high could they go on that ladder? How wobbly would each of those different steps be? And what would they need to know in order to be at the point in the ladder where they feel like they can exercise that sufficient type of command responsibility, if that is what we're talking about, right? Yeah, a lot to think about. With that in mind, I think that you've actually done that next level of analysis with this problem because a lot of the literature out there is, is probably a bit more descriptive about what this, this problem is, but you've, you've come up with some tangible considerations for ensuring that these algorithms could be used um, could potentially be used lawfully, and you've also come. Um, you've also analysed current state practice in relation to the regulation of autonomy in military operations. So, could you take us through your three-part approach to accountability, and then um, what what questions states need to ask about accountability? Yeah, absolutely. So, my sense is that there's at least three pathways 
uh, that states and other you know, international actors can take to help secure greater respect for international law on war algorithms. So one pathway, this one you just you ended with, is to form and express positions on key legal issues. Right? So by doing so, uh, states and others can help clarify existing legal parameters, they can pinpoint salient, enduring, and emerging issues, and they can detect areas of convergence and divergence. And importantly, uh, also, they can help foster greater trust among current and potential adversaries by contributing to legal clarity and stability. Uh, when I thought through some of this with uh, some colleagues, as well as in uh, engaging with non-military and humanitarian actors, I tried to boil them down to what I consider to be six of the most important questions that if international actors, especially states, took seriously and elaborate positions on, that we might be able to really help settle what I consider to be some of the more unsettled areas in law. So one of the questions is whether as a legal matter, armed conflict-related conduct ought to be reflective of human agency. And if so, what does that mean? Does it mean maybe that it's considered reflective of human agency only if the conduct is subject to the exercise by a person of intent or at least foreseeability, knowledge, and causal control in respect of the conduct? Or is it something else, right? You know, assuming at the outset, does this conduct, must, must it be reflective of human agency? Another question is whether it is, or at least ought to be, presupposed that the primary exercise and implementation of international law may be reposed only in natural persons, or whether those responsibilities may be reposed partly or wholly in artificial agents, you know, something we touched on earlier. What do we really think about how the exercise of agency from a legal perspective means, and should this be reposed in artificial agents you know, ever, or only in natural persons? Uh, a third question relates to whether legally mandated evaluative decisions and normative or value judgments may be reposed only in natural persons. So here we might think of things like the so-called proportionality assessment under the law applicable in armed conflict or detecting whether a person is wounded and sick in legal terms. These are, are evaluative decisions that entail some type of normative judgment. And so far, we've been presuming, I think, that those are going to redound into humans, but maybe that is something that we should make more concrete if that's actually the case. A fourth question is whether or not the use of proxies for legally relevant characteristics are permissible, is permissible uh, under international law applicable in relation to armed conflict. So think here about whether things that are susceptible to that sort of datification and algorithmic processes like perceived age or um, assigned gender uh, geographic location or other elements that uh, you might be able to uh, bring together through various uh, surveillance uh, in other ingest systems, whether those proxies, like those uh, technical proxies, uh, can be used for legally relevant characteristics. A uh, fifth question is whether it's a legal matter, international actors ought to pledge to engage and call upon others to commit to engage. Only in armed conflict-related conduct that is facilitative of attribution, discernibility, and scrutiny of conduct involving a relevant system, and that might include actors not involved in the conduct. And we can talk about why that might be a really tricky one later if you'd like, because I think that might be one of the, the more difficult ones. And then the last sixth question is what forms and manifestations of these systems, you know, adopted in relation to which circumstances of use and subject to what conditions mandate additional legal review. So obviously there's already, you know, treaty-based provision under Article 36 of the First Additional Protocol, 
on legal reviews of weapons, means, and methods of warfare. But I really wonder if, given the breadth of applications here, that maybe additional legal reviews ought to be considered for any use of these systems if they meet a certain threshold. So that's that's avenue one. I know very long-winded, and I'll go through avenues two and three much faster. So second avenue is for an international actor to take measures relative to its own conduct. This is pretty straightforward, I think, but hasn't yet been done uh, at least fully. So a state might, for example, take an array of actions that might concern the use of war algorithms. That could include things like enacting legislation necessary to prosecute alleged perpetrators of grave breaches, or the breaches might involve war algorithms. We could make legal advisors available to the armed forces for attacks that might involve war algorithms, or they could take steps to prevent abuses of the emblem uh, for operations involving war algorithms. So things to do within the state itself. A third uh, avenue that we set out is to take steps relative to the behavior of other international actors involving uh, war algorithms. That might include other states, international organizations, or even non-state parties. Or an example here might be a state could address matters of legal compliance by exerting diplomatic pressure, resorting to penal sanctions to repress violations, conditioning arms transfers, even monitoring the fate of transferred detainees. You know, all of those underlying uh, activities might involve a war algorithm. And yet, so far as I can tell, most states today are not in a position to exercise that type of um, monitoring and scrutiny of their of those other actors. You know, the other example in this area, of course, concerns military partnerships, many of which increasingly rely on uh, shared data reliant and algorithmic uh, systems. And here, a state might condition joint operations on a partner's compliance with the law, uh, maybe plan operations jointly in order to prevent violations uh, or opt out of specific operations if there's an expectation that the operation would violate applicable law. But this, of course, <laughs> presumes a whole bunch of information that, so far as I can tell, is not necessarily always available uh, in partner warfare today. Focusing back on that, the, the, six, um, the six questions to be asked then for states to think about accountability. You mentioned about, you mentioned the ability to regulate other actors or control other actors. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of there's a couple of strings to that in the use of these kinds of war algorithms. And I guess one is talk about the use of these these systems by non-state actors in armed conflict on the one hand, and then on the second hand is to talk about the designers and developers from an industry perspective of these capabilities, whether they are something that was originally designed for peaceful purposes and then was translated um, as a dual use technology or has been um, changed somehow to become used uh, as a war algorithm. So focusing on those two separate issues, uh, how, how can states uh, do anything with non-state actors using these, these systems on the one hand? And then on the other hand, uh, do you think there's, there's anything in particular we need to think about when we're talking defence industry or responsibility from an export control perspective, perhaps, about how we, how we deal with these algorithms? Yeah, what's interesting for me on the first question on, well, there's many interesting parts, but one interesting part is that um, with non-state uh, parties, non-state actors, is actually, I see a lot of similarities on other states. And, um, you know, that pretty much the big question is, how could a state put in place the system that's capable of being able to discern in the sense of monitoring uh, and detecting what other international actors are doing, whether it's a state or a non-state actor or a combination of them, right? So for me, I don't make a huge distinction on that front um, in terms of 
saying, look, it's important to develop the education, training facilities, et cetera, and the real commitments to be able to detect or monitor on an ongoing basis how others are developing these technologies and employing them in armed conflicts. So this is uh, requiring a type of monitoring, right, that of whether it's uh, non-state actors or states, other states. And of course, you could use different tools um, uh, legally, policy-wise, otherwise, in order to engage with those actors, if they're a state or if they're a non-state actor. I think boiled down, the big question for me is, will states be committed to actually developing internally those capabilities to monitor external conduct, to scrutinize it in a way that then they can make legal evaluations based on it, or to even you know, try to calculate their own decisions about if they're you know, engaging in an armed conflict, for instance, of what those different capabilities might mean as a, you know, adversary parties, et cetera, and that sort of thing. Um, and when it comes to the involvement of the private industry in, the, uh, in various uh, contexts, I mean, this is absolutely the case, I think, for a whole host of different states, not all states, to be sure. I think some states have incorporated much more what would be considered private industry in other contexts directly into the state apparatus or the, the lines are less clear, right? And so, you know, I can give you a very doctrinal international law perspective, which is, you know, the international law says that once the state adopts it or acquires it or, you know, decides to employ it, then all of a sudden the, all of the, what's gone before the state assumes any responsibility, et cetera, for. Sure, that gets us part of the answer, but I think what is a, a more useful approach is to think about how the entire process from beginning to end is going to, how to structure in a way that uh, maximizes the potential to uphold respect for the law. And so one way to do that is to say at the very beginning stages that you formulate military concept of operations, that you have requests for proposals, that you actually have the lawyers involved from the beginning, right? That you actually say these need, these are the minimum standards that we say that the state will say need to uh, exist with respect to things like exercising human agency, deciding if proxy is going to be available, deciding if there are going to be limitations on use in terms of the particular environments or specific uh, targets against which attacks may or may not be directed. If you do that from the outset, then you won't have to retrofit later and limit down. And my understanding from military uh, acquisition phases is they really prefer efficient processes. They don't want to have to go and redo things from the beginning. So, of course, there's a legal doctrinal approach to this, which is to say, you know, there's even under additional protocol one, et cetera, there's obligations to try to educate the public as much as possible and the rules applicable in armed conflict. Unfortunately, I don't think that we can rely necessarily on that being a sufficient hook for all of private industry to know enough about what the Geneva Conventions already require for that to be enough. But, you know, one approach is a pretty basic one, which is to just involve the lawyers from the beginning all the way through the end. We, you touched on it before, which lots of militaries like to buy things commercially off the shelf or um, adopt existing technologies to their to their needs or to their purposes. Um, and I always come back to a great example of a an AI tool that was used in Japan to scan trays of pastries. So this this was designed. I, I don't know if you've if you've seen this one, but it was designed to scan trays of pastries because apparently Japanese bakeries have you know million different varieties of croissant, and as a consequence, it was much faster and more efficient to have an AI tool that could just scan the tray to tell the cashier what the tray constituted of that capability was translated very quickly into its ability to scan for cancer cells on a slide, you know, a biological 
sample. When you were designing, the person who was designing that didn't ever contemplate the use of that capability, which was designed for pastries to be fighting cancer, actually then adjusted for use. And I think this is a huge problem when we're talking more algorithms because they're, they're quite susceptible to very minor adjustments to then be used in completely unforeseen ways. And, and you were talking about foreseeability of use of these systems earlier. So is there a need to change the approach to just technological regulation generally because of this changeability of the algorithms or is it just is it more do you think the state's obligation at the use point to try and and have those monitoring systems in place yeah so i i i at the risk of sounding like a broken record which i've been accused of before <laughs> my sense is that the where the best answer for that really depends on where you land on that initial set of questions around the, the primary values you're trying to uphold through the legal system, mm -hmm. right? So if your sense is that you're trying to uh, limit behaviors, um, trying to prohibit certain behaviors, to compel certain behaviors, and to uh, limit or constrain other behaviors, but that it's pretty much an effects or uh, you know, behaviors-based system, then maybe there doesn't need to be as much concern in that respect because ultimately you're more or less tinkering with tools and applications and methods that can be applied you know, from uh, one context to another, even if you're going from imaging for cancer screening to detecting whether somebody is going to be subject to targeting and direct attack, right? So that's one approach to this set of questions. Another approach though says, wait a second, once you've taken an AI technique or method and applied it from detecting croissants to detecting whether the, there's cancer present, let alone to detecting whether somebody's going to be targeted with a missile, that these are fundamentally different. These questions implicate values in different ways and require us to approach them in terms of how the human machine interface will be elaborated and what the minimum uh, human involvement will be uh, in those different contexts. And that's where I think a lot of the thinking from the science, technology, and society work is really helpful in figuring out, should we be elevating certain value-related considerations in this area? Because if we don't, then I think it's fairly straightforward. Then it's the behaviors and effects-based system, and that's not quite as complicated. And maybe there's nothing to do in that respect. But I really urge states and people uh, who are concerned about what states and other national actors might do in this area to look very closely at what states are saying and what the values or lack of values embedded in their approaches are. I'll give one example, which is that there is a position uh, set forth by the Russian Federation a couple of years ago saying that the existing law more or less suffices and that indeed the application of some of these new technologies will remove the potential, which the this position saw is very problematic for the exercise of human bias in in terms of uh, using uh, different ethics or social or other approaches to, to problems of war, right? To deciding who is a civilian, who can be yeah. the proportionality assessment and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas many other states would say that that's foundational actually to have that human involvement. And I think this is one of the main axes that is at stake in this debate. Mm -hmm. And it concerns targeting all the way down to humanitarian services. And so I, you know, I would, very strongly urge folks who are concerned about this issue to think, get back to basics on those, those foundational value commitments underpinning what we can consider a legal system. 
thank you for that answer. That was a really great way, I think, to reinforce that point you were making about agency, which we've we've really been talking about for the majority of the of the discussion today, because I think as you've pointed out, it, it does really come back to that that preliminary question. Um, so other than that, um, other than the fantastic resources that uh, Pilak Pilak has um, has created and and released, or, or if there are any specific ones, then then please uh, point them out to us. But uh, do you have any recommendations or further research or articles for our listeners to get smart on this on this agency question in particular, but uh, more generally on the war algorithms issue? Okay, so at at the risk of potentially overwhelming listeners and abusing the invitation, I want to plug four <laughs> sets of recommendations. So great. first. There's a handful. We've gone from two to four, so that's great. <laughs> First, there's a handful of research programs that are doing fantastic work in this area that I've learned a lot from, including the Lethal Autonomous Weapons Systems and War Crimes Project at the Geneva Graduate Institute, the uh, Dilemma Project at the Asser Institute, uh, the Emerging Military and Security Tech Team at the CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and the Auto Norms Project. They are producing fantastic uh, research that I, I urge listeners to, uh, to engage with. Uh, second, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, has elaborated numerous excellent background papers and position papers that I think merit very close attention. Third, and this is perhaps especially for lawyers and engineers, uh, but Lucy Suchman's Human Machine Reconfigurations is a great introduction to how to begin to think about related issues using concepts, frameworks, and techniques developed in the STS field, the science, technology, and society field. And finally, I implore listeners to track down and pour over states' views. So states have set out hundreds of positions in recent years related to autonomous weapons. And from my perspective, it's critical to hold states to account for what they are, and maybe especially for what they aren't saying. And trying to figure out how what they are saying about autonomous weapons might have implications for things like detention, humanitarian services, and the welter of other applications that war algorithms might be employed for pretty soon. Thank you for that list. That's a very long, even though it's only four things, there's a lot of content in those in those four things to consider. But um, uh, I think they're, they're all really fantastic resources, having just uh, having been familiar with only some with only some of them. So um, so thank you for that. It, was there anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped up today about this particular issue? The only thing I'd say is that there's in what I consider to be something of a normative impasse in the autonomous weapons debate right now, uh, among at the multilateral level among states, I think there's ways out of the impasse. And I think one of the ways to do that is for states to elaborate positions on some of these core questions. I think that really might help detect exactly where the convergences and divergences are in ways that are legally grounded. So I'm hopeful that there will consider to continue to be multilateral engagement um, uh, across you know, these issues, not only on autonomous weapons, but that the debate will uh, widen to these other application areas and that it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to trying to continue to you know, hold states to account for uh, upholding their existing obligations and hopefully also progressively developing and codifying new law as these you know, socio-technical systems continue apace. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you so much for your views. It's it's so clear that you've got such a wealth of knowledge on this particular subject um, and uh, we'll put show note links up for all of those additional resources as always. Um, and thanks again for your time. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for the, for the invitation. It was an absolute pleasure. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.